Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the mid-alt that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. If you listen on the Entail app, that's E-N-T-A-L-E, photos, links and videos of what we're talking about will pop up as you listen. Have a look. Hi, uh, I'm Emily uh, and I'm absolutely fine, but I need uh, a break, Annabelle. I need a break. And I don't mean a kind of gap year, although that would be quite nice, but I mean a sort of a, like a proper holiday involving sun and sea and and beach and sand and and, and a change. Yeah, and a change and a shift and and a and a and a kind of and an investment in myself, I suppose, and in my and and in my holiday time as opposed to um I tell you the best bit about this yes. is that you know what you need for yes. once. Yes. Well, that is also true. Yeah, I do think I need, yeah, but the problem is is now I know what I need, but I can't have it. And how are you, Annabelle? Uh I'm absolutely fine, but I feel very very unsettled. Mm. And I don't know if it's Storm Kira or the full moon or hormones or some new changes that are happening in my life. But it's been quite an unpleasant weekend. And the trouble with me when I feel unsettled is that I believe that I will always be unsettled. Yeah. And so um, the feelings sort of grow and become both who I am yeah. and my life sentence simultaneously. It's very hard that, isn't it, to separate the feelings that you're feeling right now and not feel like this is where you're going to be stuck, like a record yeah. forever. Exactly. Then you think, how a... long can I do this for yeah. before I have to just lie down forever? And and be done. But I am wearing a very comfortable pair of knickers today. Are you? And it always helps. Where are your comfy knickers from? Quickly M&S. helpful. And they're red and white stripes. I mean, they couldn't be more cheerful. Oh, my God. I might show them to you okay, later. Okay, I can't wait to see your red and white stripes. But Me you... neither. <laughs> <laughs> she pipes up. Julia Samuel is one of those people who changes the temperature of the room, who makes it a kinder, safer space. One of Britain's leading psychotherapists, her speciality has been grief. Can you imagine the things that she has seen and heard, the feelings she has witnessed, and the pain that she's had to process? Known for her wholeheartedness, she helped to launch the remarkable charity Child Bereavement UK, and has worked both with the NHS and in private practice for over 30 years. Her first book, Grief Works, came out in 2017, and her latest book, This Too Shall Pass, is out now. And it tackles something that many of us find almost gothically terrifying, change. But don't worry, because she is pearls of wisdom bound together by kindness, and it's an honour to have her with us today. Julia, how are you? I am absolutely fine. And in my trade, fine stands for fucked up, insecure, Neurotic and emotional. (laughs) (laughs) Just another Monday. (laughs) So just another day. And the things that are concerning me are both, is God sending down plagues that begin with C, the coronavirus and Storm Chiara? Yes. And having listened to your podcast, can I in any way talk articulately about what I can do and what I can write about and all your other guests are so kind of smart and funny oh. and <laughs> articulately good. So it's sort of personal and global. Can I just dive in on this nightmare that is change? change and hope. Does hope change is the stand thing for that, anything? Like sort of well, hunting, oh, horrible, <laughs> angry, <laughs> neurotic, <laughs> grief stricken um, enterprise. Basically, Exorcism. there it is. Exorcism. Exorcism. Oh. Deep. Oh my God, let's stick that on a t-shirt. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that um, 
that I noticed in your remarkable and incredibly comforting and very, very compassionate book was the idea of having a growth mindset, the idea of saying to yourself, I believe I can change in such a way that it doesn't come from a place of self-loathing, in such a way that it doesn't come from a place of, I need to change because I am nothing and I am wrong. Um, and how to make that a, a, you know, a positive, um, open-minded place to be. I mean, it starts with, when you were talking about yourself earlier, you were talking about the feelings I have, I'm worried I'm gonna feel them forever. And my perspective is that feelings are not facts. Yes. Feelings are transient. Because you feel guilty or you feel useless doesn't make it so. So first of all, you have to kind of understand that you can have a feeling and let the feeling run through your system and not for it not to be a fixed thing that then does become your mindset that That's I'm a failure. That's the trouble, isn't it? Is, is the idea of being able to let feelings go and also letting feelings that connect with the comfortable, familiar pain yeah. go. That sort of horrible little black hole that in a way, as you say, is comfortable because you feel that you don't get hurt there. You know, if I'm hor more horrible to myself than anybody else is to me, then I've beaten them to it. Yeah, so they're not going to turn on me and be more horrible because I'm already there. So then I'm not going to get hurt. And the universe can't hurt me either because I'm already in the worst case scenario. Absolutely. So fuck the universe. Fuck everybody else. Yeah. I'm going to hunker down, armor up and keep you all out. Yeah. But of course, in the process of change, which you know, we are evolutionarily born to adapt and change either through the years or through the things that happen to us for as long as we live, is the attitude of that growth mindset. It sounds a bit too kind of Americanized, but the thing that I've seen with all of my clients is that if they don't distract themselves from the discomfort of it. So the siren call of change is always discomfort yes. at one end. And it feels, and sorry sorry to interrupt you, but it feels, you know, because you, you've lived in this place professionally, it feels very close to grief. It is like grief. Yeah. It's, a, well, it's in what I call in the book a living loss. Mm. So it's exactly like grief. It has the feelings of fear, anxiety, who am I now? What who, What is the, the new me? Where do I belong? What's my identity? Um, and all the different things, whatever the living loss is. But there was kind of message I'm trying to get across is that if you can support yourself and be self-compassionate and do the things that hold you steady rather than the things that numb you or blank you out or make you feel worse, then the change will naturally come through your system and you will feel an expansion and you will discover, you'll kind of find that you're what you thought was so terrible and frightening, you kind of notice a few months later that you've accommodated it, that actually it wasn't what you dreaded. So it's kind of recognizing that this is a real thing that you have to allow, that you yeah. can't fight it because you can't win that fight. Yeah. It's really, it's interesting because it, you can do it on a micro level. I remember, you know, f when I used to drink, for example, and, and then I'd wake up the next day and I'd think, oh my God, I behaved so badly or I did this or whatever. And then I'd phone All around. All those things you said. Oof. Exactly. And, or, and, and, and then you phone around and actually, nobody really noticed anything particular because everybody else is in their own bubble of. And I think that's the, that's the biggest lesson that you learn, that, you know, that, that, what, that, that I've learned is actually 
because I'm so self-conscious and then I go, oh God, I, I'm so sorry I said that yesterday or I'm so sorry I did that. And people are like 99% of the time, they haven't noticed because they're also in their own vortex of kind of, you know, cycle of, of going backwards and forwards. Or because but, you didn't really do anything wrong. Well, that's the other thing. The idea that you feel wrong all the time. So therefore everything you do must be wrong. That's, that's something else. <laughs> but also to add into that, when you are in your own kind of shitty committee of self-recrimination and... Um, self-attack, worrying what you say, it means you have absolutely no capacity to listen. So that the thing that we need most and long for most is connection to others. And for that, we need to be able to listen. So if they hadn't been in their own kind of shitty committee, they would have remembered because they'd have been open to what you had to say, they'd have taken it in and connected with you. But because they weren't, and I think that's one of the big problems really. Yeah, I think also I love the shitty committee. I think yeah. it's genius yeah. for the inner inner chatter. Emily calls them her lizards. Um, the it, lizard brain, the amygdala. Yeah, yeah is that um, I just had to be smart then. But I, you can see that good. bit. Yeah. yeah, the lizard brain. The lizard brain is that it um, compromises your capacity for compassion. So sometimes I think when I find when I'm in the most pain, I am the least kind and understanding, and that seems like the worst of both worlds. And and that is the cruelty of how we're made. You know, I've I've put that in the book. What's so awful is that when you're your most unhappy, you're also sending out, transmitting signals of fuck off, don't come near me, you're being foul. (laughs) And people don't come near you when the thing you want most is to be loved and connected to when you feel bad. But also, if you think about it from a kind of physiological point of view, when you're very unhappy, you're probably hyper. So you're in fight or flight. Mm. So when you say you're you're worse, you're probably in fight. Mm. So you target with your words, because that's what you do. You're very good with words. People to kind of bring them down. But really what you want is to open up and them to come towards you. I had a really big health check recently and this very distinguished doctor described my nervous system as ready to kill. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which is, you know, a bit scary. So you describe this, uh, I mean, I think in the book, you describe this idea of being open to change as living in a fertile void. Yes, it doesn't come from me. It comes from someone called Fritz Perls. I mean, okay. even the word void makes me want to scream in panic. But I, I mean, it is. And I, fertile. Very, yeah. Does it make I you think of poo? <laughs> it does. It's, it's like fertilizer. Makes me think of poo, like your gut. Yeah. You know? oh, yes. No, the fertile void makes me think exactly of some kind of farming thing. Yeah. Essentially. like. But, it, but I like it. So what we tend to do is get busy and distract ourselves. Yes. And the kind of thing that helps us is always the opposite. So the thing that helps is to slow down, kind of become a bit more aware. I mean, like all this mindfulness shit is, is, has a point. Yeah, no. Like breathe, slow down, don't make decisions, let stuff go through your system, and then you're open and thoughts will emerge and decisions will come through. But if you go into your fight or flight, you only have your thinking capacity, your neofrontal cortex is completely offline. So your capacity to actually kind of reflect and cognate what is best for you is out of the window. Only what's there is how to escape. So you can only react, you can't act or create. Yes, that's I think that we, we were talking about this the other day in terms of, you know, creativity for the business or creativity for our lives. And that we get to a point where we're so tick boxy. It's so awful for the 
for the for the imagination. But it's terrible for your imagination, and also I think there is a kind of badge of honour of being so busy and getting your tasks done. So whatever whatever anyone's doing, they're busy. Yeah. I'm so busy. The I'm cult so of exhausted. Yeah. The cult of busyness. And you know, so it wouldn't be kind of you wouldn't go out and see a friend and say, Do you know, I had, I'm really relaxed. <laughs> I'm so calm. <laughs> I'm going to try that. <laughs> and <laughs> see what you know, I've just done everything and everything is sorted. I had a really easy week. I had Works a lovely week. Fine. Yeah, I feel so confident. I don't know what I would do if someone <laughs> said that to me. I might You'd kill them. them. <laughs> Part of it, I wonder, is it's about, you know, emotional energy. Not just about, yes, it's frightening and yes, it's going to ask, but also, who's got the time for change? <laughs> yes. You know, no time for change. Yeah, because yeah. then you have to think differently and be open and not just keep on storming <laughs> along your own personal conveyor belt. You sound so impatient. I am horribly <laughs> impatient with everything. And but also wanting control, if I may say stop so. stop it, Julie. We're here to talk about <laughs> your book. perfect. No, let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked it, one of the lines... In, um, in your book, one of your clients who said that she had folded all her past pain into her heart. And I think that that, that really resonated. That was Maria. Maria. Who had two lovers and a husband. It was it, interesting that, I, that, that sometimes it's hard to let go because it's ha- how you feel you're made up, who you are. That it pain. is. Yeah. But it's also where you learn most. Yes. If we can learn from our bad stuff, it yeah. then does give us the wisdom when you go forward into the next phase or event or whatever it is that you're doing that you use it if you block it and kind of shut it down into that kind of armored box you don't get the wisdom from it no um and it doesn't mean you want the fucking pain because no, no one wants the no pain. one wants the fucking pain but it's that thing of going through it rather than round it, it takes yes. less time right because if you keep going round it it comes back so that's some of the research um, was co- was completely sort of unequivocal, is that those that don't adapt to change have less joy and less success in life, but also every time they face change again, the old pains come back. So you kind of shrink as you go through life. And we know people like that, don't we? We know people who you kind of feel that they're very armoured and you ask them how they are, are and their voice is kind of narrower as they, because if you shut down pain, you also incrementally shut down your capacity to feel joy. So your capacity to be open and engage with life is foreshortened. So you live on, it's a safe bandwidth, but it's quite a narrow bandwidth. Mm. And that is quite flat and sort of empty. This idea that, that, that's in your book about, I found this very sort of comforting and also frightening is that we're part of a generation of women who almost know too much, you know, of, of the possibilities, of the opportunities, but also what's expected of us. And we were meant to be leaders, but we were meant to be mothers, and and how to, to navigate the inevitable compromise, I suppose. We grew up with Thatcher. There was apparently no glass ceiling. Obviously, there clearly was, but we were told that we, you know, we could have it all. And then we realised that having it all is doing it all and feeling it all, which is a big ask. Yeah, and failing it all. Yeah, and dying of exhaustion. Mm. But I think another way that I sort of learned from the research in the book about my section on work is that, you know, we have an image of a three-stage life that you're educated, you have a career, and then you retire. And now you have multiple stage lives. So you you may have a stage life, a stage of your life where you parent more intensely 
and then you retrain and then you get into another um, job and then you stop and you take time out. So I think it's going to be, you know, no, very few employers employ people for their whole lifetime. Anyway. And, yeah, and they in, give in, them a carriage clock. And off yeah, they go. Yeah. But I think, and in fact, actually, that's rather magnificent for women, particularly, it is. isn't it? Because exactly like you said, you can you can have children and take your foot off the the gas and, and not then, think it's the end of the world exactly and not think and then refocus or re-nose and you know again these are these are all elements of making changes which are terrifying and some people just want to hold on to everything for dear life but actually it is an opportunity isn't it there's a real opportunity yes and it, the thing that i would shout in the book is recognize that you're in this stage so enjoy this stage don't hate yourself for not doing the work that you would be more exciting than parenting is very kind of repetitive isn't it but knowing that you will have another phase that will give you energy that you can go into so that can hold you while you're in this phase because I think like when you were saying when you're in a phase it's a bit like the weather when the when the storm hits you think it's never ever going to be sunny again whereas you have to recognize even if it's only in your thinking brain that however awful this is other weather comes and then you can take advantage of it I think yes if you it's that reset thing yeah. we talk to women a lot about reset and um, and it's it's a very frightening thing I mean I think there are what what I've noticed is that even now there are more examples now than there were even five years ago of women who are successfully doing that who are you know as you say coming out parenting doing whatever they need to do and then re-entering the world in different ways and oh, knowing which that is exciting yes it is there was a very interesting tweet the other day by uh, an american journalist in her early 30s who said i am sick of reading the 30 under 30 success i don't want to hear about the 22 year old who's sold their business for a billion i want to hear about the 47 year old parent of two who's finally sold their book to you know a big movie studio and or I want to hear about the 60 year old who's published because those are the stories that have probably existed in a different kind of fertile void I for saw, a long time. I saw this weekend funnily enough after a week, couple of weeks after seeing that tweet there was a cover of it might have been Forbes magazine might have been Time magazine one of those big American ones which said uh, most powerful 40 over 40. Ah did it? <laughs> it was that's almost so a direct funny. response. That's, a, that's I had to read it twice. Most powerful 40 over 40. Yeah. That's very good. But I mean Maybe I'm singing my own thing. So I, you know, I left school when I was 16. So I had some A-levels then, but I never went to university. And I worked in publishing, then I worked in the decorating business. And then I was a therapist in the NHS for 25 years in a room without a window with no acclaim of any, not, not acclaim isn't the right word, with no kind of public-facing role except for as a founder patron of Child Bereavement UK. Um, and it wasn't until when I published my book when I was 57 that the the learning and the wisdom from that 30 years of trudging into the NHS and it's really, you know, it's amazing. I loved my job. I was so lucky, but it was the opposite of any kind of anything glamorous. Um, so it feel, that does feel exciting. It's given me a whole new um, life, which is amazing. It's about partly it's being appreciated for, it's a really weird word, because it sounds like we're old crones living on the moors, wisdom. <laughs> you know, it's different from experience and knowledge. And if you can privately put in the graft, you know, either on yourself or in, in your job or with the world and build that up, then, then you end up with a sort of pot of gold. You can do something with it. And also, I don't think acclaim is nothing. 
I think that really we need to shake our tail feathers and have, sometimes have people say, well done you. Yeah, I mean, I always, yes, I find it quite difficult, that kind of thing. But <laughs> what to accept it or to, yeah. or to, or, yeah. I mean, even saying what I just said does make me feel very ah, hot. And, but and I agree, <laughs> but it's uh, very sticky. hard to, it's like, do I want to ask you to cut it out? <laughs> well, <laughs> but, I, no. but I know, but of course, but it, that's the thing, isn't it? It's the, it's the, and Annabelle's right, you know, we, we, we have been, we live in a culture that is so youth facing for the, as, what do you call it? The kernels of kind of... Yes, I think that, you know, we're educated to believe that you have to look downwards in terms of age for any kind of meaningful cultural conversation. But of course, that I always think that goes against a really early example, which is if you're at school and you're 12, you want to know what the 15-year-olds are doing. You want to know what the big girls are doing. You want to know what's in the post. You don't want to know what the 9-year-olds are doing. And so we find that with everything that we do, um, we've got a really fast-growing audience of, sort of 25 to 30-year-olds. Have you? Yeah who just want to know what the 40-year-olds are doing. Yeah. But I also I love your honesty of your podcast. Ah. I mean, I think that's what is amazingly healing, that you are so searingly honest in a way that isn't um, victim-based or um, damaging, but you say the things that all of us think. And then that makes them quite healing because then you, you normalise. All of us have that shitty committee. But Emily and I figured that if we put out all our madness and pain and confusion on the table, um, we just, you know, what would that look like? Particularly when everything that is for grown-up women seems to be put through a sort of strange filter. We thought we'd remove, we'd remove the filter. And also try and counteract all that shame that yeah. we all are cloaked in all the time. As you said earlier, Emily, about assuming that, of course, everything you do is wrong because you are wrong. Yeah. The shame is just shame is really is, hard. Shame is so to... toxic. I mean, one thing I would argue is that neither of you are the least bit mad. That <laughs> what you feel is what the majority of people feel, so it's n- normal. Um, but also, but shame, that thing that you do to yourself, mm. shame sort of grows like topsy, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's the really sort of scourge, I think, particularly with women. Guilt and shame are the two things that women really poison their whole being with. Um, and I think I hope that if my book can reduce that in the tiniest bit, when people begin to sort of value themselves for who they are and with all their imperfections and not feel kind of that awful corrosive shame, that would be an amazing thing. I read something the other day and it was something like guilt is when you feel that you've created a problem. Shame is when you feel that you are the problem. Oh, yes. Yeah. I um, felt very held reading your book. We're all going through this agonizing cycle of trying to work out who we are, trying to work out who we are in relation to the people in our lives and then in the wider world and then to try and not, you know, take all the the knocks and take the, them into the new relationships or the, the current relationships, but also try and imagine, try not to. I mean, it's interesting about change. I think one of the things that that's also very unnerving about it is that it might not be something you want for circumstances to change beyond your control mm. and so one tries to keep everything as controlled as possible for fear of of that of that change but you know and you just close down opportunities and also we talk about identity who am i who am i you know uh, uh, and then you realize that you're not who you think you are because you've changed again yes yes i love what you said about how you know we do change every the seven year itch is a thing Same. we do change and at the heart of change is identity yeah. mm. so you know if you ask anybody um, what is your identity they ask the question who am I so who am I now if I've lost my job 
yeah. or if I've been if I'm I'm being divorced against my will, am I now a nobody and nothing? And so the whole process of change goes to the centre and the, the heart of, of identity is the need to love and belong because that's we're tribal. But also there's this thing of who am I now if I'm not his wife and I'm not living in this house? And that's all about, am I valid as a person? Am I lovable? And where do I belong? Mm. And who can talk- I belong with? Mm. But, um, and we, t- we talked about this a bit earlier, Julia, but also, has my currency somehow... Devalued. Devalued. Um, because, you know, couples have more... You know, they, have a, you know, they, they, have, they, have, they seem to have more right to have a place in the world or at the table or in a hotel or in a restaurant, wherever it might be. Well, they actually take up more physical space. Yeah. And, uh, you know... I worked with quite a lot of single women in the book, and you know, a couple of them were were separated and divorced, and they were definitely devalued once they no longer had a partner. You know, they were put in the spare room with the Batman wallpaper that was the child's, rather than in the guest room when they were a couple. They were asked to do chores when you know when they wouldn't have been as a couple. And I think there is still in us some primitive wiring about. Um, singlehood is more vulnerable and kind of an outcast in some physiological primitive way that we don't fully let ourselves know but we behave as if it's in us mm-hmm. does that make sense yes yeah. so it's a bit complicated well i think no. i think the po- I, it's that's very interesting because i think the point is is that it's there but it's unacknowledged it's unacknowledged and that's a better way of putting it and that's, no. but that is problematic if it's unacknowledged because it's dishonest. it's dishonest and so it means that if you are single and you sense that uh, you think am i going mad i'm insane and that's probably why i'm single yes as well exactly so, so here we are in another your, loop of shame and yeah, horror the yeah. loop of shame but actually we should do a fun fair you know the, like the like the middle fun fair of what, like Disney like, World or yes exactly Shame City Shame City exactly where you're in hello welcome to the loop of shame exactly or, where you go you go and you gamble and you lose all your money and then the roller know, coaster all, yes exactly or the hall of mirrors where the mirrors are actually mirrors <laughs> 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 so you see yourself <laughs> and it's also wound up in I think you know all these things whether it's career whether it's romantic is what we anticipated from our lives, what we expected yeah, what of we ourselves dreamed. and what lives. And you you asked this really interesting question in your book, which is, you say, what is it fair to expect of our life and what do we have to accept? Yeah. Well, I think it's a very, very useful question. Mm. Because if we don't know what we want, how do we ever get there? And if our dreams are really truthfully, once we talk to a friend or a therapist, totally unrealistic Mm. we're just giving ourselves a recipe to drive ourselves mad it's a different kind of punishment it's a different punishment because you have this sort of dream that is never gonna be the case but what you what through reflection I think we can all find for ourselves is a life that is both realistic and one that we'd be happy with um yeah that we can be content with I I think the extremes are unlikely and actually the extremes very rarely deliver what they you expect them you know if, mm. when you look at all that research on happiness people who've won the oscar or they've won an olympic medal they go back to their default mode of happiness 10 days after the prize 
So even when you've had that dream and you get the dream. Also, the sacrifice to get there presumably yeah. is incredibly, you know, I mean, I when I can't watch the Olympics without crying. I always cry. I, I, I mean, every time anyone crosses a line in any sport. So do I. I cry. I don't watch it. Do you know? I want to be on the podium, I think, with do prizes. You? Oh, no, I, I don't. F- I failed my ballet age five, and I honestly think... <laughs> You've never recovered. <laughs> I've never it. recovered. Oh, I think no. I've wanted a prize ever since. I bet oh. you go to the ballet all the time just to press that I love that the bruise. ballet, yes. <laughs> just to be reminded of your failure. Oh. But how have you found a way to process all the pain and the grief that has passed through your room? So I think in some ways I don't. It's it's in me. Um, so I have a, a much. So if I uh, if my children have a headache, I think they have a brain tumor. Um, when they're pregnant, I literally count every single day. Do you? Well, because I worked in the pediatric and maternity oh. unit, so I I work with You've babies that died, and I know all the stories oh. and children that died. So for twenty five years, all I had was the bad stories. Um, so it's changed. My lens is very extreme on what, I, what is normal to me, is, is very abnormal. So that is scary. But the things I physically do help a lot. So I kickbox. Do so, you? And I have that is done, so badass. So I've done that for like 28 years. Oh my, um, you, I punch belts? his lights out. But he, he can't believe, A, how much I swear, and also, which he loves, and how much I want to hurt him, because I'm quite <laughs> short. So all the fury I feel, I, I punch that out. And I, I exercise a lot. So that okay. gets rid of a lot of the fight or flight that's in my system. And then I do normal things like comforting things, like watching comforting telly, um, eating probably too much. And um, then I do things that sort of soothe me. Well, I think nature soothes me. Do you do cold water swimming? Well, I have done it, and I love it, but I couldn't go up to the ponds every Because I have friends who potentially can get themselves emotionally into really, really catastrophic amounts of trouble. Um, a couple who are flinging themselves into Hampstead Pond, into the sea, into whatever it might be in December without a wetsuit, and just try to try and hold, hold off the demons, and they say it works. Well, I, I mean, I think cold showers are just as good. Um, it does work. I had a client in this book, This Too Shall Pass, just in case you haven't heard it the first time. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, who she was highly anxious and the therapy did help but the thing that really made the difference was cold water swimming it made her feel brave yeah Yeah. and that fight or flight thing it dropped her um, cortisol so it dropped her stress levels and increased the dopamine so she felt calmer and um, she felt kind of bigger inside and Mm. you know the research is completely indisputable if you're physically stronger you are mentally stronger the two are completely interconnected the the shower thing I felt quite prepared to have a cold shower until someone told me for it to work you have to be under it for about three minutes I thought 10 seconds would do yes three minutes would probably be right but I have started meditating amazing yeah and until this weird weekend I think one of the reasons this weekend was so unsettling was because I feel like I used to feel and the last couple of months have been a lot better. And when you're feeling like unsettled like that, it's pretty. It's really hard to to kind of reconnect with yourself and and how far you've come. So does that mean having a chat with your own five year old, your own fifteen year old, your own wherever you need to go? It's the old pain folded into the heart. Really, unfold it and have a little look. Yeah, and, have a chat. and you can do that lots of different ways. You can do it by going for a walk with a friend and talking about it and take it in turns. You can do it by writing a letter, like your five-year-old self is writing a letter to you, 
or 15 year old self writing a letter to you. You can do it with a therapist. Um, you can do it in all sorts of ways, but I think what you want is to kind of know what the old messages are mm -hmm. and then recognize what are the messages that are true today and useful and what are the messages that really served me when I was seven and, I mean, like me with my ballet, you know, failing my ballet. It's mm. time for me to learn. It doesn't matter that I fail my, no, my ballet. No. But those old messages are so noisy and it's so hard to form those habits because I lose concentration and just forget to be, you know, vigilant. Magnificent uh, and powerful and... And forget and, to feel brave yeah. or whatever it might be. And I and, and then hear, I think a lot of people hear all the old stuff and forget to be, forget to find any kind of emotional sobriety. So um, lots of people know that I, I haven't ha had a drink for about 14 years, but I was definitely at my most crazy and anxious about five or six years into that. Yeah. Because even though I'd done the usual, um, even though I'd worked very hard on not drinking, what I hadn't done was look at in any great detail why I drank, cost. exactly, yeah. and, the, and, and what it took to stay sober. sober, but also what made me you know, drink in the first place. And there are some very obvious, I think that it's very, there are some very obvious sort of um, markers, like, you know, a parent who drank and things like that, which obviously are sort of, you know, you can brush them off and say, well, of course, that's why. But actually, my issues are about not having any wants and needs or not knowing what they are, rather. So I'm a wantless, needless creature. It's a perfect microcosm of quite a big injury yeah so you know if you were brought up not to want or need because you weren't allowed to want or need then you would get increasingly empty wouldn't you because you never get your needs met and you don't even know what they are so you're performing all the time trying to meet everybody else's expectations uh, but you never get the satisfaction because you don't really know what anyone else's expectations are so you kind of run on Just empty guessing and you're running on empty without alcohol. Mm. So that, you know, the noise obviously in your head got louder and louder and louder until finally, and that's where I would say the pain is the agent of change. Because you went so bonkers, you couldn't ignore it anymore. A, a thousand percent. It, 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 it forced you to listen to it, pay attention and change. Yeah. And that's now then you're getting the growth from that and the benefit from yeah. that. But the thing that's so fucking annoying is it takes much longer than anyone wants. And yeah. sometimes it can take a horrible amount of time to even find the rock bottom. You can kind of scuttle along the bottom yeah. of the emotional sea for fucking years yeah. before you something catastrophic happens. Yeah. And I think that, that kind of midlife misery kind of thing of nothing really bad but nothing really good is very... Um, uh, undermining and then mm. sort of uh, wearing but you but wearing and you think well what's wrong with me nothing's wrong with me I'm earning enough money I have friends but I feel very low all the time and maybe lonely and also sometimes lazy and bad yeah. because you assume that everybody else is fine yeah. and you know you know <laughs> you're not coping <laughs> yeah. no yes no one else must know but um but but you know that you're really really not okay yeah that's um, one of the things that we try and do is we that's what always, you do here is we is we always answer how we always take how are you as an actual question it's a difficult one to get right isn't it being you know not being promiscuously honest but being 
honest in the right way with the right people at the right time. So apart from writing your amazing books, you're still working yeah. day to day and yeah. learning, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think when I'm, I think probably I'm at my best when I work, when I'm a therapist. I'm much nicer as a therapist than I am to my husband, see. <laughs> <laughs> I give my clients my best self. I mean, I'm quite nice to him some of the time. But <laughs> but um, I, think it, I think therapy is a collaboration where I kind of reach out f for their benefit, their internal world, to make their internal world voiced and apparent to themselves and so that they can understand themselves better and be more informed about how they go through the world. So I don't see therapy as me fixing them, but as creating an environment and a relationship where they don't feel judged, where they begin to really discover what are those different voices of the shitty committee. You yeah. know, you can have 25 voices all shouting at the same time, or you can have silence and you just have nothing and you don't know what that is or what that means and of course when it works it's it's powerfully transmitted so yeah. I feel it in my body and I use my body and the tone of my voice and how I look at them as a vehicle for, to help them understand themselves but I you know I'm so lucky I found something I love doing yeah I always knew I was in really bad shape when a couple of times over sort of nine years my therapist gave me a hug as I left. I thought, okay, she's, she's really, really worried. <laughs> <laughs> Usually she just lay a hand on my shoulder as I walked out the door and say, look after yourself. But if it was a hug, I was like, oh, okay, we're I really in trouble. Got to her. Yeah. Whereas I say to my therapist, permission to hug? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Emily's a hugger. Is this inappropriate? Can I? Yeah, anyway. But I also think that therapy has been too secret a world. I think, you know, Books like The Examined Life have been good, but they, you still didn't know what he felt or what was going on in him. And I think the mystery and the sort of not saying anything doesn't help people reach it and go to it. And it doesn't help therapists either. I mean, I think we all want to see how other therapists work. I think and that's true. Them see me make my mistakes and my kind of fears and stuff. Because when therapy got demystified, therapists didn't. You might as well have been sort of like, you know, witches in white cloaks. Exactly. Hidden in the room through, uh, through confidentiality. So yeah. I'm incredibly grateful to my clients to give permission to let me write about them. Mm -hmm. It's very brave of them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I really have disguised them, so I don't think any of them will be recognised. But it was a real act of trust. Yeah. But it's an amazing... It's an amazing relationship. I mean, it's because it's so personal and it's so intimate. Um, and it's very protected as well. And it, it is protected, yeah. yeah. That four walls, people coming, you know, I mean, particularly when I see people whose children have died, um, where they can't, it's so excruciatingly painful, they can't really talk about it anywhere else, knowing that they come and see me as a couple and that they can face that level of pain just because they know it's only that 50 minutes they couldn't do it if it was longer yeah is very is very powerful and he, and it does it is healing yeah but it just shows even even us and we're like oh let's talk about feelings you talk about those lets uh, those depths of unimaginable pain and we are completely silenced and i think sometimes when you have people in your life that have gone through something appallingly catastrophic 
you don't know how much to make a nuisance of yourself, how to be told so you can to the point where they could tell you to go away, or whether you should retreat and give space, or how as a non therapist to help people who are going through terrible things. Yeah. I mean I think the the biggest thing is to acknowledge it, but also to ask the question. You know, I want to come and see you, I want to take you for a walk, but tell me what you want. Yeah. You know, if I'm overdoing it, if I'm over texting, tell me. So ask the person. And that would be true at the extreme end when a child has died or something really devastating has happened, as it would be to a friend who's lost their job. You know, that you would you don't want to kind of make them a victim and but you also want you just need to ask them what do you need? Mm. Yeah. You know, I'm here, I love you. Tell me what you need. I can and come be able and to hear them. And hear them. Yeah. And I mean the big you know, one of my big messages, the big secret of communication is listening. listening and I don't think we feel heard so we keep on shouting louder and we don't aren't open enough to properly listen which means also we feel a bit lonely yeah mm. I think when you really listen you connect with yourself and you connect with the other person and then something rather amazing happens rather than just waiting to talk or filling silences or thinking that somehow I think when you don't feel heard you, you if it increase it when you voice something that matters to you and you don't feel it's like being taken on board you feel increasingly pointless I think that happens a lot to women in the workplace still yeah I know you've got your chapter on identity and it looks at some of that yeah um, and you know we were talking to a very powerful businesswoman the other day and even she at the absolute peak of her profession was saying when I'm in a room with men they absolutely don't listen and they also take a very long time to say what they need to say and mostly because that's because they're just beating their chests and yes. she's sitting there thinking one I'm not heard and two this could be done in five minutes can we please just wrap it up isn't that so interesting you yeah. would have thought in the 21st century 2020 when we've had a two women prime ministers that women would be heard but you know old habits die hard right? I think all that women prime minister stuff just really pisses off the patriarchy and makes it gird its loins even more I mean look what's happening in America they're like all right ladies you've had your fun now let's just whip away those reproductive rights and let's see how you get on then <laughs> it's terrifying it's, it's like terrifying. a sort of nightmare house of fun everything's moving and shifting and turning and whirling mm. and will you be writing another book I hope so Mm. Yes, there is one yet? in. I do actually. There's one in the post. There's one in the in my head. Oh, ah. oh, that um, means she's not going to tell us what it's about. No, no very exciting. Well, all I can say is I hope you'll come back. Yes, I would love to come back because it's before a, maybe because that'll probably be in ten years' time. <laughs> yes, before <laughs> maybe yeah. we can come, come and talk about other things. In fact, why don't we come back next week and then we can have <laughs> a bit of a chat? <laughs> yes, <laughs> but it has been, as I suspected it would be, an absolute honour to have you on. Thank yeah. you so oh, much, Julia. It's been a Thank real so pleasure. You've been listening to Annabel Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Midult. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. And we'll just leave you with this thought. Falling apart or falling into place. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. <laughs> to be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts.